Well, let's turn in our Bibles now to the Gospel of John and chapter 1. We'll be looking at John 1, 14 through 18 this morning. And as we do so, I want us to think about one of the ways that people have gotten Jesus wrong. All throughout the history of the church, uh, there have been uh, people who have uh, distorted, twisted, misunderstood uh, what the Bible says about Jesus. That was true in the early days of the church, and that's still true today. Right? For us, uh, one of the main ways people get Jesus wrong is they say, well, he was just a good man, maybe even a great man. He was certainly a great teacher, but he wasn't God. Lots of people think that, right? Jesus was a good guy, but to say that he's God, that's going too far, they think. But of all the ways, so that's a, that's a current, modern way people get Jesus wrong. But of all the ways that people have gotten Jesus wrong, one of the most interesting, I think, and to us, surprising ways that people have gotten Jesus wrong, is there were people in the early days of the church who believed that Jesus had not really come in the flesh. It looked like Jesus had come in the flesh, but he hadn't really come in the flesh. Now that sounds strange to us because that's one of the few things that most people today will at least acknowledge. That Jesus was a real historical person, that he was a real human being. But in the early days of the church, there were some who denied that Jesus had truly come in the flesh, that he was truly man. And we see evidence of this in uh, John's first letter that he wrote. So we're looking at the Gospel of John, but the same John, the Apostle John, wrote a few letters. We know him as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 1st John, he gave a warning to Christians in his day that went like this. He said, this is in 1st John 4, he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, How do we do that? What are we looking for? He says, by this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Which you have heard was what you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So apparently there were teachers in John's own day who did not believe or confess that Jesus had come in the flesh, that he was truly man. Now, uh, there are reasons for that. It's probably connected to uh, a worldview that was prominent in, in those days called Gnosticism, right? The scholars will tell us about all this stuff, right? That, um, and then that worldview, they believed that material, physical things were bad and the spiritual, immaterial world was good, right? So if you believe that God came down to save people and you held that worldview, you wouldn't think that God would take on flesh because flesh is evil, flesh is bad. God can't really be man. That's, you know, ugh, is the way they thought about it. Right? So they didn't believe that Jesus really was 
man really came in the flesh, or at least many didn't. But John took great pains to say, yes, he did come in the flesh, and it's essential that we believe that Jesus came in the flesh. What's most important for us this morning is not why they denied that Jesus came in the flesh, but what goes wrong if we don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Why did John care if some people said, we believe in Jesus, but we don't believe that he was man. We don't believe he really had a physical body. Why does that matter? Well, John tells us in the very beginning of that letter, he said, look, we have heard and seen with our eyes and looked upon and have touched him. He was really there. He was really a true man. He had a physical body like the rest of us. Why is that so important? Well, if Jesus had only come to teach, it probably wouldn't have been that important. I mean, if he just kind of come down like an angel in some type of kind of like temporary human form, if all he was here to do is teach, no big deal, right? If all he came to do was perform miracles to heal people, people don't usually care who heals them as long as they get healed. They didn't care. They wouldn't have cared if he had a human body, a human nature like us. But if he came to save us, if he came to restore what was lost in Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and brought death and a curse on the world so that our bodies die, we are spiritually dead and separated from God as a result of sin, then in order for him to save us, to fix all that, he had to be like us. He had to have a physical body so that he could die on the cross, paying the penalty. That's, that's the penalty for sin. He can't pay the penalty for sin if he doesn't have a body that can die. He can't take our place if he's not like us. If he just kind of appeared to be like us, sort of seemed like us, well, that's not going to do us much good. He has to become one of us in order to, to represent us and take our place on the cross so that we can be saved. So that we can be reconciled to God. So that we don't have to suffer the, the consequences of our sin. So that he takes our, our death and gives us new life. That's only possible if he really was man. And John is at pains not only to talk about that in 1 John, but also here in the Gospel of John. Let me read for us verses 14 to 18. Having that in the back of your minds, knowing that that was a a big deal, a controversy in John's own day, and is important for us, listen to what John says now in John 1, beginning in verse 14. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His Glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So, 
right there in verse 14, John says as plainly as he can that the Word became flesh. Now, we have to remember who the Word is. In verse 1, he told us in the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God. So the Word is the Son of God. He's going to take on flesh and and we're going to know Him as Jesus. But even before that, the Word was with God in the beginning, before there was anything. And He was God. The Word is fully divine, fully God, the second person of the Trinity was not made, was not created, has no beginning, is eternally God. And that Word, through whom everything was made, John says in verse 3, that Word became flesh. The one who created flesh in the beginning took on flesh himself. The one who was there and a part of the the conversation, so to speak, when God said in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. That God took on flesh, bore the likeness of himself, the image of himself, because he'd made man in the image and likeness of God, and he was God, and he became Flesh. Now, John doesn't tell us the story of how that happened like Matthew and Luke do. But we know from Matthew and Luke how this happened. That God sent one of his angels, Gabriel, to a virgin who was betrothed to be married, a woman named Mary, and told her that she was going to have a son. And that she would conceive not in the normal, natural way, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. The child she would bear would not have a human father, but would be the Son of God. In some mysterious way, the Holy Spirit would cause this to happen, and she would bear the Messiah. The child to be born from her would be Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world. He was born of a woman, Paul says in Galatians 4. Born under the law. He came into the world as a man, born as a baby, born from a human mother, and yet he was the Son of God. That's about as far as we can go, right? Beyond that, it's mystery. Beautiful mystery. But the Word became flesh, and John says, dwelt among us. He lived in the midst of his people. In the midst of other human beings. He lived mostly among the Jews. He ministered. He taught. He ate. He drank. He lived. He slept. He got tired. His humanity was real. And visible. And John was an eyewitness to all of that. When John tells us that God became man, he's not repeating some ancient story that somebody made up at some point that he could have no idea whether or not it was true. He says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, includes John, and we have seen His glory. I'm an eyewitness, John says. I saw it. What was it that he saw? We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, one 
Bible teachers suggest that he could be talking about the moment where Jesus' glory was unveiled on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because John was one of the three that Jesus chose to go with him up on that mountain. Remember when Jesus was up there and his, his appearance was transfigured? He, he was, uh, his garments became bright, white, and Moses and Elijah were standing there with him on the mountain. It was Peter and James and John, the John who wrote this book. And God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And it was an unveiling of Jesus' heavenly glory that they might get a glimpse of what Jesus would look like when he returns, when he comes back. And that's certainly possible. Because John did see that. But I'm inclined to think that John is talking about here what we might call Jesus' ordinary glory. Not that there's anything ordinary about the glory of Jesus, but his day-to-day glory. Let's put it that way. Because what he says here is we saw his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. So he's come from the father as the only son. He's got a uniqueness that nobody else has. Saw his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And I think what John is saying is, I walked with Jesus. I talked with Jesus. He interacted with me and I watched him interact with hundreds thousands of other people. And do you know what I saw in him day after day after day? A fullness of grace and truth that I have not seen in anybody else. Because Jesus was not just gracious, he was full of grace. Jesus was not just truthful, right? He was full of truth. And he knew how to be both full of grace and full of truth. That's very hard for anybody else to do. As we try to be imitators of Christ, as we try to follow Christ, we try to be gracious and speak the truth. But it's very easy for us to speak the truth with not enough grace. Sometimes very little, if any, grace. And then on the other hand, sometimes it's, it's easy for us to try to be so gracious that we, we won't even insist on what is true. But Jesus didn't have that problem. Because he was perfect, because he was sinless, because he was God. He always manifested the perfect balance, for lack of a better word, of grace and truth. And John said, I saw it. I saw him. I saw his glory. There's no one else like him. No one else like him who's full of grace and truth. And one of the things I want us to remember and think about as we we hear those words is to know that that was not only true of Jesus while he was on the earth, that's still true of Jesus now. And so if you, if you think of Jesus seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father in all his heavenly glory, however your mind's eye kind of perceives that picture, right in that picture, in your mind, right under his feet, write the words, full of grace and truth. 
Because every time you go to God in prayer in the name of Jesus, you need to remember that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Just as full of grace and truth as he was when he walked beside Peter and James and John and all the other apostles. He is gracious. Gracious and truthful. Perfectly and fully. And John doesn't leave us with his own witness only, but calls in the witness of another John, John the Baptist in verse 15, where he says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, what is, what is John the Baptist saying there? Well, evidently, as he was uh, preaching and, and baptizing, right, he was preparing people for Jesus's Arrival on sort of the, the public stage, the, the beginning of his public ministry. And so he'd been telling people there's someone coming. And at this point, he's saying, okay, now he's here. But remember what I told you about him. Remember I told you that there was someone coming after me who ranks before me. In other words, who's greater than me, more important than me. John was not the most important person. In God's plan. He was important. But he was not the most important person. And he knew that. He knew that his job. Was to prepare the way. For Jesus. He was the one. That Isaiah 40 talks about. Going to prepare the way of the Lord. To make the path straight. To repair the people. For the coming of their God. And so John says. The one who's coming after me. Ranks before me. Because, he says, he was before me. Now, what does that mean? He was before me. We might start with, like, does it just mean that Jesus is older? Like, even though Jesus comes on the scene later, that he, he was born before John? But if we read the story of the birth of John and the birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, we find out that um, Elizabeth, who gave birth to John the Baptist... She was already six months into her pregnancy when Mary was told that she was going to have a son. So John the Baptist is born first, months ahead of Jesus. So John's not just saying, well, he's my senior because he's the older cousin, you know. No. He was before me. He existed before me. Though he was born after me, unlike me, his birth was not his beginning. He is greater than me because he existed long before me because this is God himself come among us. That's what John is pointing at. That's what John is saying. So even John the Baptist bears witness to not just the greatness, but the deity of Jesus, that he's God in the flesh. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, for, and he's kind of picking back up what he said at the end of verse 14 about Jesus being full of grace and truth. He says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus is not just full of grace and truth, he pours out upon us grace upon grace. He does not keep all that grace to himself. 
He shares it. He overflows with it so that we receive grace from Him. Now, what does that last phrase there at the end of verse 16 mean? Grace upon grace. And there are lots of different ideas. People try to explain what that could possibly mean. But here's one that I think does well at capturing what John probably means by saying we've received from Jesus grace upon grace. So here's what this teacher says. He says, probably he means that as one piece of divine grace, so to speak, recedes and is replaced uh, by another. God's grace to his people is continuous and is never exhausted. Grace knows no interruption and no limit. In other words, when we might say in a particular moment about a particular you know, thing that happens to us during the day or something that happened in a season of our life, we say, oh, God was really gracious to me there. I, that, that, was, that was the grace of God that that happened. That he's saying, probably what John means when he says we receive from Jesus grace upon grace is that those moments of grace are not isolated. Like one time God showed me grace a few years ago. Hopefully he'll show me some grace again in a few years. But that moment after moment, day after day, month after month, year after year, we are receiving grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That Jesus' grace to us that we receive from him is a never-ceasing stream of grace. How about another witness? Verse 17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John here is saying, I think, that Jesus is greater than Moses. That's certainly true, and I think that's John's point here. Because what did we receive from Moses or through Moses? Well, through Moses, God gave his people the law. And the law was good, but the law couldn't save. The law could not transform. The law could not change. The law was a good gift, but it's nothing compared to what Jesus brings. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The grace that saves us, the grace that transforms us, the grace that changes us comes not through Moses and not through the law, but only through Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. In other words, we should accept no substitutes for Jesus. There were some in Jesus' own day who weren't too sure what they thought about Jesus but they felt pretty confident about Moses. We can trust Moses. We're not sure if we can trust you. Well, Jesus said, turns out, Moses wrote about me. If you really listened to Moses and trusted him, you would believe me. Because in many of the things that he wrote, he was talking about me. And John is telling us, Moses didn't give us what Jesus is able to give us. The grace that comes from Jesus is not available through Moses. Only Jesus brought that grace and truth into the world. So no matter how great someone is, whether it's Moses or John the Baptist or John the Apostle or whoever, accept no substitutes for Jesus. Let no great man in your mind be greater than Jesus because no one is greater than Jesus because Jesus 
only is the eternal Son of God become man. And all those other men were sent by God to point to Jesus. What was true of John was true of Moses and all the others, right? That he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, to point to Christ, not to take his place or be his rival, as Jesus is the greatest. From him we receive grace and truth. Now, last verse, verse 18. At this point, you might be thinking about some of these things we've said about Jesus. Well, yes, yes, I know that's true of Jesus. But what about the Father? I know Jesus is gracious. But is God the Father that gracious? Look at what John says in verse 18. I don't don't want you to miss this. I want this to be really, really clear in your minds. He says, no one has ever seen God. Right Now, we heard that in our scripture reading earlier from Exodus 33. Even Moses, who the Bible says, God spoke to him face to face like a man speaks to his friend. Even Moses was not allowed to see God's face and live. If he saw God's face, he would die. So God only allowed him to get sort of a glimpse of his back. No one has ever seen God, John says. We know this to be true from the scriptures. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Here's what he's saying. No one's ever been allowed to see God face to face. But God, the Son, who is at the side of God the Father, in the bosom of God the Father, as near to God the Father as it's possible to be, He has come among us. And what did He do when He came among us? He has made the Father known. Now here's what that means. Every time you see Jesus doing something, interacting with a person, performing a miracle, every time you hear Him teaching, what He is revealing, what He is demonstrating, what He is showing about His heart, His character, is not true only of Him, but is also true of the Father. That's why, remember this, this event, uh, this passage where uh, John is talk, or excuse me, Jesus is talking to his disciples, this is later in John 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, you know, I'm the way and the truth and the life and I'm going to prepare a place for you and all those things. And Philip says, um, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. That's all we want. We just want you to show us God the Father. What does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. When I showed compassion... To that person who was sick, troubled, oppressed by a demon, wounded, grieving, whatever. When I showed compassion to that person, I wasn't just showing you my heart. I was showing you the Father's heart. 
Whenever I interacted with broken sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes, and the people that nobody else wanted to talk to, much less sit down to dinner with, I was showing you the Father's heart toward broken sinners. If you've seen me, Philip, he says, you've seen the Father. John's telling us that's one of the reasons why he came, is to make the Father known. So we we cannot have in our minds this division between what Jesus is like and what God the Father is like. As though Jesus is gracious and the Father is stern. That Jesus is compassionate and the Father is more hard-hearted. It's not true. It's not biblical. Jesus came to show us the Father. So whatever you see Jesus doing, you see God doing. However you see Jesus responding to people, you see God responding to people that way. Jesus' compassion is the Father's compassion. Jesus' love is the Father's love. That's what He came to show us. As I was uh, writing this sermon this last last week, I came across uh, a quote that sums this up so well. I'd never heard this before, but it's it's perfect. It's, It's so exactly what John is trying to say. Okay, here's what this guy said. He said, he said God is Christ-like and in Him is no un-Christ-likeness at all. God is Christ-like and in Him is no un-Christ-likeness at all. Here's the thing. Here's what he's trying to say with those words. There are not two gods. There are not three gods. There is one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The character of God, the attributes of God, do not alter or change at all between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The attributes of the Holy Spirit are the attributes of the Son, are the attributes of the Father, because there is only one God. The Son is not the Father, right? And the Spirit is not the Son, but their attributes are the same. Their character is the same. So when Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us, He was not showing us the character of one member of the Trinity, but of all three, because their character is the same, and their character is unchanging. Jesus is not more merciful than God. He is merciful because He is God. He's not more gracious than God. He's not more loving than God. He's gracious and loving because He is God. The Jesus who came in the flesh is the God who was in the beginning. He is the God who came to save us. He had to be man or he could not have died in our place. And he had to be God because only God can save. Let's pray.